Hello Ice Coffeens, back for more Banzari goodness I see. I'm supposed to be diving this afternoon but I'm not, so I can carry on from where I left off last episode with the Discovery working south from the Quick Whalens. I'm still full of lunch coffee, so I'll recount this lot while I get to work with the spanners and calipers. As the aircraft took shape, Campbell requested ropes by which to tie the machine down to the grating on which it stood. Mackenzie, convinced by experience that non-mariners let loose on deck with knives unsupervised, would quickly cut all ropes, including the shrouds and halyards, into lengths convenient to themselves and neither use nor ornament to anyone else, handed over the sisal guardedly, requesting the aviators not cut the length. This saw the airframe tied down with an amusingly convoluted system of lashings and knots in the single span of line, Fletcher commenting the edifice appeared more rope than plain. Radio contact proved sporadic, but valuable information did pass between the Discovery and Australia when everything worked in William's favour. Colbeck and Child, standing watch, tried their hand at edging the ship across the Antarctic Circle and came a cropper running the ship into a large flow which heeled her over. Davis raced for the bridge and got them out of the situation. Any assumptions the junior officers feared he already made about their abilities now likely reinforced by this demonstration of their skill and judgement. With the de Havilland Gypsy Moth ready, the pilots received a request that they get airborne and report on the ice conditions at the earliest opportunity. This required calm air, good visibility and enough open water for the takeoff run. The opportunity arose on the 21st of December and the ABs craned the motor launch and the gypsy moth onto the water. The launch began towing the aircraft clear of the ship, but repeated attempts to start the plane's engine only achieved a few backfires. Eric Douglas decided the magnetos must have gotten damp during their long fallow period on deck and these were removed and dried out in the galley's oven, but by the time they were reinstalled the weather looked crap for flying, and the aircraft went aboard again, the floats being removed to allow the airframe be dogged directly to the grating with bolts in place of the ridiculous nest of rope applied previously. Faller and Fletcher applied the launch to collect bird specimens, but otherwise all the crane work went for naught. Spouting blue whales led to attempts at using a marking gun. Barbed discs mounted on a wooden bolt shot from the muzzle of a large bore firearm bruised many a shoulder, but the aerodynamics of the projectile, lacking spin stabilisation and featuring a large flat surface at the leading edge, prevented anything approaching accuracy and the volunteer fusiliers quickly lost interest and the whales passed on their way untagged. The following morning, Campbell and Douglas tried to start the Gypsy Moth's engine before fitting the floats and lowering it onto the water and even with newly dry magnetos, it wouldn't turn over. Deciding the engine block must be cold-soaked to the point nothing was moving as it should, Hurley borrowed a primer stove from Doc Ingram's bacteriological equipment and placed it under the aircraft's nose to let the heat seep upward to knock the corners off the cold. The unattended unit capsized when the ship rolled and a fire broke out on deck, and while this was quickly subdued with extinguishers before the gypsy moth caught a light or the ship burnt to the waterline, the stove was wrecked. In another attempt to get the engine warmed and eager to start, electric heating strips were applied on either side of the engine block and medical ether, also known as starcher bastard, was puffed into the carburetor to no positive effect. An alternative was needed and arose in the form of a canvas funnel fitted to the gypsy moth's engine cowling at one end and entering the ship's funnel at the other. An electric fan pushed hot exhaust gases through the canvas to warm the engine block, while Campbell and Douglas took to draining the engine oil between engine runs, heating it on the galley stove immediately prior to use. Christmas Eve saw the ship steaming slowly in the lee of two large icebergs, waiting out a blizzard that made advance among the ice flows dangerous. But Professor Johnson found over 500 tapeworms in a single emperor penguin intestine, which made his day, if no one else's. On Christmas Day, Campbell and Douglas got the Gypsy Moth engine started, but with flying out of the question, they stopped it again, wrapping the cowling in a tarpaulin to aid in heat retention 
Now they knew two of the secrets of cold weather operations. At luncheon, a Christmas cake donated by an Adelaide bakery went under Mawson's knife and everyone toasted the king and the expedition with Yolumba port from Mawson's home estate. Hurley once more turned to hidden tubing for his gaggery and made smoke pour out his ears to the amusement of all once the initial alarm this caused eased. Davis read out radio messages from the Antarctic Committee and Prime Minister Scullin, who ousted Prime Minister Bruce in the Australian federal election held two weeks after the discovery left Cape Town to become Australia's ninth leader since Federation, and the first Prime Minister actually born in the nation he ministered to. He was also the first Catholic Prime Minister, and given that the Catholic-Protestant tension maintained in Australia well into my childhood, only receding as Christianity as a whole began to wane in power, and all the Christians began to hold hands to maintain headcount. This was a big deal. Someone got in touch to ask if I could leave religion out of the podcast, but since religion played a big part in human history, and individual religions are very eager to be included in historical accounts when they think they did something laudable, the answer to that question is no. Until people leave religion out of history, its presence as part of any historical narrative is warranted. And if you're happy enough to listen to my commentary and opinions when they jibe with your own, don't try to tell me when or how to hold my tongue when they don't. If you don't like the content I produce, you can start your own podcast, or if you're not feeling like actually doing something about the things that move you to write to me, stop listening to mine. Maybe I should leave politics out of Antarctic history too. That'd make for a short series. Antarctic is cold and some people ate their dogs there. The end. Anyway, Roast Emperor Penguin served as main course and received generally favourable reviews. With the weather improving, the biologists ran a trawl with the Monegasque dredge, retrieving large numbers of echinoderms and manganese-rich rocks and cobbles from a depth of one and a half kilometres. On Boxing Day, Captain Davis logged the first continental sighting while the ship lay at its furthest south to date. 67 degrees, 30 minutes south. Though the peaks seen from the crow's nest were less than certainly land, and the pressurised pack indicated against attempting a closer survey. Alf Howard remarked on the biological desolation of the area, noting that even the seals didn't work the ice the Banzari found themselves amongst. The pack showed scope for progress toward the southeast, always alert to the Norwegians working further west, determined to press on to Enderby land. To that end, Getting the gypsy moth airborne to reconnoitre a path in that direction remained a high priority, but the dense pack stymied any flying. Caught between the conflicting goals of making a landfall for a claiming ceremony in their current location and rock blocking the Norwegians, Mawson ordered a shift north to get clear of the pack and to make as much ground westward as quickly as possible. The cold affected more gear on deck than just the biplane, and the three donkey engines used to run the winches required some TLC in the form of blowtorches before working towards a plankton station among the ice flows. Plankton nets have been the bane of my sampling life. They're elegant and beautiful in their way, but the engineering required to catch tiny and fragile life see some large and very cumbersome designs fabricated, and I wasn't surprised to read about things going awry with nets triggered to close at the wrong time by the mishandling of messenger units, the weighted bobbins you send down a cable to trigger a sampling mechanism, and mishaps when communications to the winch operator went awry, sometimes resulting in large, gossamer contraptions going through the pulley system with badly mangled results. Plankton nets are slow, wet, fiddly work in the warm latitudes, and it sounds as though no one enjoyed using them among the ice. In an incident I found goosebumpily similar to the time my boss nearly lost his head on a scallop boat, Professor Johnson rushed toward the Monegasque dredge, returned from a shot to the 500 metre deep seafloor. While it was still suspended from a boom, itself suspended from a block rigged high on the main mast. Enraptured by the sight of some biological shiny shiny, the professor walked under the suspended load, later estimated to exceed three tonnes, to examine more closely. Alf Howard called out to get clear, and the professor heeded, 
Stepping out from beneath the dredge at the same moment, the block gave out, and the whole lot fell on the deck. The boom passed the eager biologist so close it tore his balaclava off. Professor Johnson's brains remained internal, but there were only millimetres in it. Gales and blizzards kept progress west slow, and the ship remained among the pack through to New Year's Eve, when still air allowed another oceanographic station, and clear skies allowed the first flight of the gypsy moth. Campbell and Douglas rode with their charge as the gypsy moth was boomed onto the water, and the engine started with Douglas' first swing on the propeller. The motor launch was also launched, while the aircraft taxied clear of the ship, Campbell taking his time over his pre-flight checks to allow the engine to warm up to the optimum operating temperature range. As the aviators took off and headed south, Faller and Fletcher experienced an engine failure in the motor launch, blamed for the seawater in the fuel tank falling on the head of Engineer Griggs with much blue language. Fletcher drained the tank, cleaned the carburetor as best he could under the free-boning circumstances, and used the reserve fuel tank to get things moving, such that the launch could render assistance, should the gypsy moth require it, on its return, and not the other way around. While waiting on the water, Faller shot birds, including Wilson's storm petrels, which makes me sad because I like them above all other birds, Antarctic and otherwise, but also impressed because I'm pretty sure I couldn't hit one of those flitting geniuses with a blunderbuss. And even then, the fast-tracking, low-angle shot let off near sea level would likely put any object or entity within range in extreme danger of receiving ricochets off the water. The gypsy moth returned and Faller and Fletcher made to motor toward it, but the motor once again gave out. Campbell taxied the aircraft to the ship without assistance and offered Sir Douglas the opportunity to take Eric Douglas' seat, but old ducks ips demurred, based on the lateness of the hour. The ABs boomed the gypsy moth back aboard while Faller and Fletcher returned to the ship in fifths and starts as the engine problems continued, the final stretch being covered by oars, those on the thwarts covered by chagrin. Unable to get the radio set fitted to the aircraft to work, Campbell and Douglas reported in person, sighting ice-covered land 55 miles to the south with 10 miles of open water lying immediately offshore, though the intervening miles of sea ice comprised tight-packed flows. Black-tipped mountain peaks indicated offshore islands somewhere in that expanse, but the uncertainties inherent to dead-reckoning navigation kept all position records arising from the flights necessarily vague. Mawson decided to name the landmass McRobertson Land after his largest private donor's confectionery line, and the islands the Douglas Islands, nominally after Rear Admiral Douglas, Royal Navy Hydrographer, but I'm sure Eric Douglas was pleased nonetheless. The wardroom rung out the old year with a concert party at which the captain's lament, contrasting life aboard the Discovery during its first and its most recent Antarctic voyages, proved the favourite of the entertainments. I've no idea of the tune, but the lyrics run, Once I went exploring in the old Discovery, we had one ruddy scientist and seaman 53. We didn't have an aeroplane or echo sounder then. We didn't have any long-haired sheep in a wooden pen. We sailed the sea like Captain Cook, our stars we knew like a ruddy book. We ate salt horse and we liked it very well. In 40 years, things have gone to hell. We didn't have your lumber or tomago squash. We didn't have hot water and we never had a wash. We didn't play with plankton nets or shoot the otter trawl. We didn't dredge with monogasks and make an utter balls. We didn't have an engine to help us on our way. We didn't let the scientists have stations every day. We didn't count the dust motes or let balloons go free. We only sailed like Captain Cook upon the wide blue sea. But now those days are over, and seamen six have we. Thirteen ruddy scientists who do not know the sea. They say all sorts of stupid things which pain me in the head. So now I think I'll leave the bridge and make my way to bed. Mawson got out the Yellumba port for toasts, and then announced a towknet station, which must have been fun and games with everyone past half cut, before Campbell, Doc Ingram and Fletcher climbed the rigging to watch the rays of the midnight sun send them into the 1930s. In the small hours, Mawson and Davis disputed the future movements of the ship. Captain Davis had earned the respect of all on board for his seamanship in open waters. He lost his gloomy countenance when gritting his teeth into a gale, 
and his competence in hairy circumstances inspired admiration and confidence that the ship lay in safe hands. But Mawson felt supremely unhappy with his friend's unwillingness to push the discovery into the pack. First Officer Mackenzie regularly mouthed off in Mawson's company his disappointment in his superior officer's timidity regarding the ice, reinforcing Mawson's idea that Davis was losing his nerve for pack work. It was only then, two and a half months after departing Cape Town, that Mawson shared the secret government orders with his captain, which can't have been heartening to Davis as a mariner or as a friend. Not only did the government expect him to see the commander's prerogative to the scientist, unless the ship and its complement were placed in danger, but Mawson didn't respect him enough to share the officially stipulated goals of their voyage with him until this late stage in the actual operation. Mawson ordered Davis carry them west with all possible speed, and Davis prepped his officers to work in the leads as best they could, the officer on watch taking on the unenviable task of interpreting the scene from the crow's nest and trying to avoid getting caught in a cul-de-sac among the old, thick sea ice. On several occasions, the ship ran up blind alleys, its reinforced stem being put to use in breaking through to an adjacent lead, with all the delay and violence such operations entail in a ship of that vintage. A radio message came in from Lord Casey. The Norwegians discovered and claimed land between Enderby and Coatslands, beyond the western limit of Mawson's remit, but still a significant prompt to get west and get claiming. During lunch on the 3rd of January, Captain Davis inflamed Sir Douglas ire during a discussion about the Norwegians. Recounted in Mawson's diary, he argued strongly that the Norwegians have every right to try and anticipate us at Enderby Land. He said we had been most disgracefully secret about our plan. He went on in this disloyal way, trying to find fault with our expedition where there was no fault, forgiving the faults of others. I pointed out that ours was a scientific expedition. He said that was all eyewash. We were out to grab land. Doc Ingram brought the dialogue to a close by drowning it out with the gramophone. Sightings of mountain peaks from the crow's nest encouraged another flight to try to validate estimated positions and heights. Campbell took Mawson aloft for the first time on this second flight, taking off from a long stretch of open water between ice flows. Mawson returned with a geologist's overview of the topography of McRobertson land, though no photographs. He's having broken the photographic plate-changing box when something jammed, and he pulled the back off trying to get it free, ruining the first and only exposure he made. The flight allowed Campbell to inform Colbeck, officer of the watch at the time, on the best leads available from their present position. Campbell left the floats affixed when the gypsy moth came aboard that evening in anticipation of further flying the following day. Swell from the northwest indicated open water, as pack ice exerts a damping effect on waves. And while swell might preclude getting the gypsy moth up for reconnaissance, open water negated the need. The motion set Doc Ingram off with another bout of seasickness, and I really feel for the poor medico, as two and a half months into the voyage and still not finding his sea legs puts my most nauseated experiences into perspective. Heavy snow and strong winds saw the rigging coated in ice, which looked pretty and Campbell employed hessian sacking in an attempt to prevent falling shards damaging the fabric wing and control surfaces of the gypsy moth, but several large icicles punctured the tautly doped linen, Campbell recounting one particularly large one piercing both upper and lower wings in the same moment. The wings looked less pretty, and this necessitated much work with the patching kit and an overall decrease in aerodynamic efficiency Though to look at a gypsy moth, you mightn't think that much of a problem, what with the airframe mostly comprising cross-sectional surface area, parasite drag and headwinds in the first place. Campbell and Douglas also got the gypsy moth off its float and dogged back onto the deck to allay fears that it would blow overboard in the strengthening winds. A radio message from Dr Henderson of the Australian Department of External Affairs corrected Lord Casey's message putting the Norwegian landing further east than previously noted, placing the claim inside the area of Australian interest and due south of the Discovery's position at that moment. A kick in the morale for the entire Banzari team, particularly to Mawson, who thought, up to that point, 
he had a tacit agreement from the Norwegians that they would remain west of Enderby Land. With this news and Captain Davis' assertion that they would need to return to the Kerguelens to bunker more fuel when the firebox began to eat into the 100-ton coal reserve, Mawson ordered a change of course back to the east, determined to make a landing as a bulwark against further encroachment into the nominal Commonwealth region. The discovery crossed the Antarctic Circle once again, in an area they'd traversed just under a week earlier, but dense pack blocked access to the coast. The recent blizzard having damaged the radio aerial, Mawson couldn't speak to representatives of the Antarctic Committee or the Australian Government, and decided off his own bat to try heading west again. Approaching the western limit of Kempland, the pack ice density eased and the discovery skirted the continent more closely than at any previous point on the voyage. Grounded bergs kept the helm on their toes, but all eyes sought rocky outcroppings on which to raise a flag. Passing a headland at the furthest eastern margin of Enderby Land, which received the name Cape Batterby, Mawson announced a shore party and the scientific contingent assembled on deck with their equipment. The motor launch experienced further trouble from water in the carburetor, progress alternating between motor and ore propulsion until the bow came in contact with the shore of a small rocky island and Mawson led the party up the beach, while Simmers and Howard got the magnetic instruments established. The rest of the team headed for the island summit where they built a cairn to secure a flagstaff on which to raise the Union Jack. A wooden plaque carved by Hurley recounted the claiming ceremony but didn't include that the proclamation Mawson intended reading from already lay deep beneath the rocks of the cairn, forcing him to work from memory with some prompts from Moyes and Hurley in the wings and it went a little something like this. I, Sir Douglas Mawson, do hereby proclaim and declare to all men that from and after the date of these presents, the full sovereignty of the territory which we have discovered and explored, south of latitude 64 degrees, and as far as the South Pole, this in His Majesty, King George V, his heirs and successors forever. Three cheers and a rendition of God Save the King and suddenly a large mass of land was the property of the crown, though I don't know if the magic still holds after a sledging team out of Mawson Station retrieved the buried proclamation, which now resides in the National Library of Australia in Canberra. And what of the ceremony occurring on an island and not the continent? Didn't that automatically cede credibility to the French and the Norwegian territorial claims previously scoffed at for taking place on islands? Yeah. Trying to pass the logic of nonsense is always tricky. Ah well, another possession island on the charts. The party couldn't stay ashore long, as the surrounding waters lay too deep for Davis to anchor, and he couldn't guarantee a pickup should the ice move in. So the scientists departed after just enough collecting and photography to demonstrate they had been where they said they'd been, and to determine that the island comprises gneisses and schists in the realm of the three billion year old mark as determined by the geological clock of the day. Fletcher felt the wrath of the Adelis as he carried two skewers he'd shot through a rookery on the lower slopes of the island, the penguins rising from their nests to attack the carcasses viciously. He raised the limp bodies over his head to protect their value as scientific specimens, but this just made his shins the target of the penguins' venomous attacks, and as terrifying as it no doubt was in the moment, I find the spectacle he describes, that being his being tripped over and covering the final yards on his back, weighed down by a haversack of rock specimens and his precious dead skewers, barely making progress under the weight of the angry birds, most amusing. More sputtering from the water-compromised carburetor interrupted progress back to the ship, which Davis kept well offshore after encountering a submerged reef while sounding around the island. Fletcher, by now adept at dismantling the fuel system, got them home, but decided to completely strip down the carburetor and get its components properly dry in the warmth of the galley. Further transit west saw a headland come in view that Captain Davis determined as Cape Anne, first and last sighted by Bisco in 1831, but ice precluded a landing there. Fine weather allowed a lot of sightings and surveying, and Mawson overwrote several of Bisco's names with his own, 
good British names such as the Tula Range and the Scott Range. The swell precluded a flight by the Gypsy Moth to better delineate the coastal margin than could have been done from the Crow's Nest. On the 15th, the arrival on the scene of the Norvegia, its hull much scarred by encounters with the ice, its Lockheed Vega's wings overhanging the bulwarks, and the Hansa Brandenburg's tail hanging out well astern, the decks loaded with coal recently bunkered from the factory vessel Torshammer, saw all focus on the polite dipping of ensigns and raising of signal flags, wishing the Norwegians a pleasant voyage. The Norvegia swung in close. Risa Larsen requested a discussion with Sir Douglas via megaphone, and the Norwegian crew readied the ship's boat. Risa Larsen came aboard the Discovery with Captain Nielsen, and while the aviator retired for a discussion with Mawson and Davis, the Norwegian mariner eagerly looked over the famous ship, paying particular attention to Scott's former berth, now housing Johnson and Fletcher. Pointed questions about the future movements of the Norvegia were battered aside by a feigned language barrier, and where that didn't serve, polite demurals. Captain Nielsen could provide news from other expeditions, the Norwegian radio equipment holding up better than their own, and the whaling fleet providing excellent relay service all the way back to mainland South America. Ah, you hear that? That's the reason I'm not diving this afternoon. Fucker buzzed me this morning just as I was coming back to the drop line, and I'm not giving her the chance to do that again. I was wondering why I hadn't seen a Waddell seal for a couple of days and the clarity of hindsight contrasts with the state of my underclothes by the time I got clear of the hole. People sometimes ask me how I can spend all day in my dry suit, drinking coffee and sucking down the raspberry cordial. Depends. She poked her head into the hut, but the heat and the noise seemed to bother her more than the Waddell's ever seemed to notice, so I'm not expecting a return visit. That's not to say she might not hang around the site, lurking in the dark at the margins, waiting for something clumsy and slow-moving to swim into range. Leopard seals are transient, but it's a good idea to give it a few days after the most recent evidence of a presence to be sure a particular individual is fucked right off. It just so happens that this one turning up coincides with the sudden need to completely dismantle and service all of my gear. I really don't want to pop out into the open under the brash and see that grin waiting for me. Those animals couldn't be scarier if H.R. Geiger designed them and added a little, irreversible mouth inside their big mouth. Not nightmare fuel, in the sense that I don't need to be asleep to be well impressed by those jaws. I know a lot of people bang on about them being misunderstood and that irrational fear of anything is, by definition, irrational and unwarranted. But understanding an apex predator isn't synonymous with wanting to spend time with them under two metres of sea ice. And labelling a fear irrational doesn't null that fear, even if the label is apt, which I can test. I think fearing leopard seals is not only rational, but healthy, in the same sense that a general fear of lions and bears will serve the average monkey well. So, back to the Antarctic action, though not to the whole. Never turn your back on the sea, even if it's only a metre and a half wide. The Australians learnt of Bird's flight to the Pole, Wilkins' explorations along the peninsula and into the Weddell Sea, and of the loss of the Cosmos own de Havilland Moth, and the resultant deaths of pilot Leif Lear and Dr Ingvald Schreiner. After seeing the Norwegian guests back in their boat, the wardroom crammed full of expeditioners eager to hear what transpired between the Norwegian and the Australian expedition leaders. Mawson didn't have much to report. The Norwegians laid claim to a stretch of 100 kilometres of coast, spanning the margin of Kemp and Enderby lands, using the Hansa Brandenburg to make a continental landing, during which Risa Larsen and Holm Lutzal skied some distance into the hinterland. Larsen didn't mention raising the Norwegian flag, and Mawson didn't ask him whether or not he did, because diplomacy. Larsen's government, after dialogue with British counterparts, sent orders by radio to confine any further efforts to the west of Enderby land, and on learning of the Discovery's coal concerns, offered to arrange a bunkering of 50 tonnes from one of the Norwegian factory vessels, but Sir Douglas declined the offer. 
Larsen hinted that the Norvegia's remaining time in the south would be dedicated to oceanography and studying the pack ice movements to the benefit of the whaling fleet, taking the apparent pressure off in terms of heading further west to get ashore and make with the claimings, so Mawson requested a return to Cape Ann to get continental. During dinner, Davis once more inflamed Mawson with much talk of how competent and efficient he thought the Norwegians' efforts. Mawson's diary records the discussion with much venom, closing his remarks on the matter. I mention these things so as to be able, later, to recall how utterly imbecile J.K. is. He is not mentally balanced. Campbell and Fletcher, impressed by the immaculate appearance of Larson during his visit, shaved themselves to bareface and, impressed by the transformation, decided to take advantage of their sudden and dramatic shift in appearance to play it up with the rest of the crew. Dressed in Campbell and Douglas flying leathers, the duo, led by Doc Ingram and Ma, who were in on the gag, visited the forecastle as Captain Holm and the fictional Captain Rubberson, having flown alongside the Discovery and come aboard for as much of a visit and as much conviviality as their limited English allowed. The gag worked in that the steward, George, set about making up spare bunks ready for their guests, and after a tour of the engines, Engineer Griggs came topside to see their aircraft and to marvel that their guests managed to come aboard without his having to ease speed. The subterfuge was revealed and everyone enjoyed a hearty laugh and a slap on the knee because this was 1930 on a ship in a remote area and entertainment was that hard to come by. To which I say, bunga bunga. While adrift in a gap in the pack ice on the 16th, waiting out a growing gale, the ship's cat went down the slop chute and into the sea. The cry of, Cat overboard! went up, and all hands turned to, trying ineffectually to recover the gamely swimming feline. Concerned for the life of his particular pet, Lofty Martin trousered down and went over the gunwale, recovering his cat but succumbing so quickly to the cold himself that he couldn't contribute to his own rescue brute force hauling on a line, seeing him back on board and off to the engine room to recover. He and his cat, none the worse for their scare. Ice precluded a landing on Cape Ann, the opportunity missed during fine weather, receiving much hindsight hand-wringing, but to no additional traction for that. With the wind working up to full gale, Captain Davis steamed out of the protection of the pocket in the ice and ran west before the growing seas. Fletcher records several moments when it appeared the following waves might swallow the entire stern, but gloomy Davis, well in his element, walked the bridge muttering sea shanties and grinning as at no other point in the voyage, his countenance and behaviour instilling confidence in his skills and will, easing the tension a little, though conversation still ceased whenever the discovery stood right over on either beam and hung there before slowly succumbing to the ship's writing moment. Doc Ingram seasick again, laughed heartily as he watched Fletcher sliding about on the floor of his berth, where the dock temporarily rested in Fletcher's bunk. Until he learnt, the waves had breached his own berth, flooding his personals and wrecking all bacteriological specimens and upsetting the entirety of his hospital equipment. With the gale pushing them 150 nautical miles further west, Captain Davis extended the coal reserve to 120 tonnes, at which he would immediately set course for the Kerguelens. This left little time for further exploratory work once the gale died away, the one advantage of their situation being that the sea ice received as much of a shake-up from the easterly gale as the ship, and may have opened up access to the coast. Turning east once more, Davis made slow progress against the easing winds, pushing into falling snow and dodging icebergs, with the one and a half knot speed over ground the engines could achieve against the current and waves the gale established. On the 20th, a relayed contact with the South African whaler, the Radioline, came through, and everyone hoped that a tentative agreement to bunker coal from her might see their explorations extended beyond the looming 120-ton coal reserve horizon. A sudden swing to starboard coincided with the strong gust of wind, and the ship got turned full broadside to the swell, broaching, the masts near horizontal and the sea pouring in through all unsecured hatches. The helmsman held her to starboard and the discovery eventually righted again, 
heading west once more, but it was a near-run thing. When conditions allowed, Davis once more turned for Cape Ann, but with no sign of the radio lean and the discovery burning through the coal, the much-desired continental landing began to look less and less likely. Perhaps a flight off Possession Island as the weather came good? Captain Davis did what he could to make it happen, but five miles of loose pack and a falling barometer indicated against heading any closer. The first shot with the otter trawl did not go well. An otter trawl uses boards attached to spreader cables to hold the mouth of a fishing net open, this then entraining all the fish in front of it into the cot end where it's caught and held for processing on deck. It's an impressive feat of engineering and maritime experience when it's used by an experienced crew, but in the hands of the Banzari team, the complex sequence of events required to shoot, fish and retrieve the net didn't run smoothly. The net sampled the seafloor instead of the necton immediately above it, and both the trawl gear and the dimomometer used to measure the load placed on the cables were badly damaged for a return of just seven specimens of fish, leading back to the mantra that has served me well in a quarter centre of maritime sampling. Know your gear and rehearse using it on paper and then use it close to home before deploying it in remote areas that cost you a lot of money to get to. Clearweather saw Captain Davis give permission to engineer Griggs to service the engines, an operation requiring much dismantling in addition to letting the fires go out. An unexpectedly strong set to the local currents saw sails raised at the hurry-up to avoid the ship drifting into the pack while its engines were out of commission. With the engines reassembled and perfect flying weather in the offing, Campbell and Douglas spent much of a night preparing the Gypsy Moth for its next flight of the voyage and the ABs craned their mount onto the water early the following morning. After a test flight, Campbell gave up his seat for Hurley, who documented the coast with still and moving picture cameras. I think it was this flight on which the aircraft landed near a French sealing vessel, and its occupants accepted an invitation aboard, and several alcoholic beverages too, in their words, helped them deal with the odour of sealing. Another flight this time carrying Campbell and Mawson, overflew the continent, where Campbell dropped the Union Jack attached to a short stake, and Mawson read out the magic words of the claiming proclamation, though I'm not sure if the land heard him over the noise of the aircraft, or from the height of 5,000 feet. A stretch of open water spotted adjacent to the continental shore saw the tension between Mawson and Davis come to a head. Mawson urged they should push through the pack to the open stretch and make a landing in the motor launch. Davis refused, stating that the uncharted nature of the water put the ship in danger of striking a submerged reef, as occurred off Possession Island. The captain's mandate to look to the safety of the ship first overrode Mawson's prerogative to make a continental landing. In Davis' words, I am not going to take any risks for that bloody rubbishing business of raising flags ashore. When I first read of this, I got out my Pixies CDs and played Here Come Your Man. Davis advocated for Australia holding sway in the Antarctic throughout the 1920s, but seems to have found hypocrisy in the subterfuge of putting science forward as the rationalisation for the expedition and frustration in how this affected his ability to make the most of the vessel made available to him. As mentioned earlier, the discovery could make distance or take samples, but asking it to do both made it bad at both, making Davis' job unenviably difficult. For his part, Mawson noted in his diary, Another week here with the aeroplane would have completed the mapping of McRobertson land and added detail of the Scott Mountains. If I was in full authority over the handling of the vessel, I would not leave these shores. All true, I'm sure, but to be in full authority over the vessel, Mawson would have needed his master's certificates and commensurate experience, and then he'd see the situation from a mariner's perspective and likely hoof it, as per Davis. Wishing for wings, really fervently, won't make you hit the ground any less hard. Further flights, dredge samples and plankton stations comprised the final activities in proximity to the Antarctic coast that season, as Mawson and Davis simmered at each other, 
resorting to written communication as their relationship degraded under the strain of their competing interests. Davis insisted they make for the Kerguelens, as the coal had hit the 100-ton cutoff. Mawson muttered that 80 tons would suffice if more use of sails were made. That the coal bunkers still held 60 tons of coal as they arrived once more at Jean d'Arc whaling station only reinforced the bitter recriminations that Davis had failed his superior in executing the mandate given them by the Commonwealth. Davis probably couldn't give fewer fucks about these recriminations and was heard singing Rolling Home while on watch. Oceanographic station sampling continued throughout the transit, and with decreasing coal stocks and nothing to ballast the ship in its place, the tendency of the discovery to roll kept increasing, and oceanographic stations took longer and longer in proportion to the ship's motion, and as the serviceability of the deck gear, in particular the donkey engines, in much need of servicing, degraded. Sir Douglas requested the Antarctic Committee's permission to return south once bunkering at the Kerguelens was complete, but a septic foot put one of the firemen into what Doc Ingram managed to reinstate at the infirmary, and uncertainty over the need to operate, perhaps even amputate, left the course of the discovery uncertain, even while they awaited word from Australia. Fowler and Fletcher responded to a request for a lecture series about animal phyla, and these took place in the fiddly, the space above the stokehold, the main appeal being the warmth. With seating comprising upturned ash buckets, the educationally minded wore a badge in the form of a grey circle on their trouser seats. Fletcher's second shave of the expedition led to a hair-cutting party, dutifully captured for posterity by Frank Hurley, mirroring the same kind of maniacal barbering he captured aboard the Endurance, a ritual I've taken part in myself. The ship entered Royal Sound to find a French sealer at anchor, its crew likely wondering what happened to all the seals they expected to find on the beaches, and made fast to the rickety wharf at Jean d'Arc just an hour before a gale sprang up that would have seen them standing off had they arrived any later. Bunkering kicked off the following morning while the weather continued foul. Fletcher went ashore to hunt for rabbits and ducks after finishing the sort on a last-minute sampling with the Monegasque dredge, but found little game, though he did sight a Samoid in the distance. The Fidley Club reconvened in the abandoned station office, left recently cleaned by the crew of the Kilfornia which is a nice touch for a crew of poaching sealers. The stove there attracted Moyes, who worked on his charts, and Howard, completing his water sampling records, where the ship only offered them a cold office in which to work. The space also came to serve as the infirmary for the injured stoker, the infection in his foot still not improving, and Doc Ingram and Fletcher also moved ashore to tend to him. The Fiddley Club's new premises became increasingly popular, with people wanting to work in the warm, updating their diaries, skinning birds, and working the newly installed gramophone. Attempts to shoot rabbits using the building as a blind were discontinued when Campbell nearly wore a blast as he came unexpectedly into view downrange. We thought you was a rabbit! The explosives never used in any attempt to free the ship from ice, were instead used down rabbit burrows in further unsuccessful attempts to pad the larder with bunnies. Mawson sent seven of the scientific party on a two-day collecting foray up Greenland Harbour, where rocks and birds and small dredge samples were collected. Campbell and Ma, showing particular interest in the position of Fletcher's sleeping bag in the tent he shared with Moyes and Doc Ingram, gave Fletcher the impetus to trade places with Moyes, thereby seeing the surveyor take the brunt of the faux elephant seal attack the aviator and ecologist launched on what they thought was the junior scientist later that evening. Again, I say bunga bunga. Little else of note came of the outing beyond Fletcher's finding a Wilson storm petrel nest on high, something only rarely before seen. On the 19th of February, Campbell got airborne, with Hurley taking aerial photographs. With the ship as bunkered as it was going to get short of digging at a new coal cellar, but still awaiting word from Australia, Sir Douglas organised another shore collecting party 
up the Enzensberger Arm, named after the member of Drygalski's Gauss expedition who remained in the Kerguelens to make magnetic observations and died while there. See episode 25. As did two of the five Chinese labourers also left to establish the huts the party used through the winter, which I only recently learnt about. The motor launcher's engine gave new trouble, leaking oil from the cylinder head, but, old school hard cases that these people were, instead of heading back to the discovery and enjoying a hot meal while the engineer sorted out the problem, they dismantled the engine while lying at anchor, cut a new gasket to seal the leak, and carried on their way, finding the huts in the early evening. The site used by the Gauss party built on that established by the Challenger expedition visit in 1874, when the Brits established an observatory from which to observe a transit of Venus. The German facilities added to this basis received some maintenance in 1910 from Raymond Rallier de Batty, a veteran of Charcot's first Antarctic expedition working to survey the archipelago to bolster the French government claim on the islands aboard his surveying catch, the J.B. Charcot. And so, we're in pretty good nick, considering the weather they'd stood out in for two decades. The motor launch continued up the arm towards the Gazelle Basin, site of a French residence allegedly home to a French farmer, his wife and their two daughters, part of the terms of the French claim on the islands being permanent residents of French citizens. No sign of the thousand sheep landed in 1909, or the twenty landed in 1911, or the other twenty landed in 1913, showed beyond a few broken pens, and strong winds putting water over the gunnels and threatening the engine with further watery stoppages prevented the parties reaching the residence. The attempt at a French pastoral presence was abandoned in 1931 because the idea of sending a family to live somewhere with the supplementary name the Desolation Islands is a stupid idea, as the five anonymous graves near what remains of the huts and the absence of a breeding population of sheep attest. So ran the days up to the end of February with no firm word from Australia, though the radio sets were working nicely. Collecting forays in the motor launch, sampling for benthic fauna and plankton, survey work and magnetic measurements, went on until Davis declared the brief southern summer at an end, and continual westerly gales in the offing. Sir Douglas reluctantly concurred. Rather than aiming once more for Heard Island, Davis set course for Albany, Western Australia. Sampling stations on the way north brought aboard manganese nodules, which in spite of their presence on seafloor sediments below 900 metres, and repeated spates of geological excitement about same, have never been successfully extracted for profit, though people have pretended to prospect for them as a cover for military activities. Manganese is a transition metal that's good to have for making alloys of steel and such, and manganese dioxide forms the cathode in the bulk of Leclanche cells, which you might know better as the non-rechargeable forms of AAA, AA, C, D and 9 volt batteries. It is mined and people do make money from it, but not so much that I get manganese fever when my equipment brings a nodule of the stuff to the surface of the sea, and I think it only warrants note if there's nothing more interesting in your sample, like a foraminiferin. Fella shot a black-browed albatross to the disgust of the seamen, to whom such action is poor form on the superstitions front, and Professor Johnson got excited about what he thought constituted an entirely new phylum of parasitic worm he found in the bird's intestines but, which turned out to be a strand of spaghetti, either thrown overboard with the lunch scraps and snapped up by the bird, or placed there by one of the people trying to stifle their laughter at the biologist's excitement. Stuart Dungey, who diligently made sure everyone downed their daily glass of orange juice, didn't take the anti-scorbutic himself, and experienced a mild case of scurvy as a result. Not the last of its kind to be recounted in the series, but bloody late in the piece, given that by this point... The problem was well understood and easily combated by anyone not actively going out of their way to experience it. The wind came away the following day, letting the superstitious have their post hoc ergo propter hoc and eat it too, and Fowler received many a curse with their eye, as per standard epic poem. Tidying up about the ship, the ABs returned a box of gramophone records borrowed from the wardroom, 
and accidentally left the palm pressed between two of the LPs. Entitled, In Authority, suspectedly from the pen of Frank Marsland, it ripped the piss out of the ship's offices, and Fletcher returned it to the forecastle where it was received with much relief. The good ship discovery of Antarctica fame includes in her complement the creme de la creme, but of these are seven who cannot lay claim to the most minute tread of authority. There is Guardsman Martin and Lobsterpot Mac, Fur Trapper Tommy and Swede Basher Jack, Jock George and Young Ozzy completing the pack of those who are minus authority. On Kerguelen's fair waters aspiring to float, they approached the chief officer requesting a boat, which was granted on terms which it grieves me to quote, you return before dark to authority. Now sadly I tell how they failed in their trust, returning at last neath the sprinkled stardust to a much annoyed mate who so sadly cussed them for daring to flaunt his authority. Unrepentant e'en yet, though they've left that fair isle, and they still stagger under the chief officer's bile, and of favours they get none, tis all done by the rile, the seven who respect no authority. They are morbid and morose, and on every young face, there is now clear to see the indelible trace of their shocking ill-doings, they are now not quite nice, aren't those seven who laughed at authority. When Jimmy, the hissute, to Mulvin goes back, and endeavours to masker the equestrian hack, there is one quality I know he will certainly lack, that's the elusive complex of authority. When Kenneth the Rochard joins the dum-dum once more, we'll find that his status will not be as your. In fact, in the company there'll be quite a furor. By jings, he has lost his authority. And fur-trapped Tommy of homicide prates, and seeks opportunities of slaying the mates, or the skipper or others whose lamentable fates have ordained they should be in authority. And Swede Basher Jack will philander no more, with the ladies of Lonsdale, but will come to the fore, as a Bolshevik nihilist who craves for the gore of those bachelor's sons in authority. And the taciturn jock becomes even more so, since that fateful night when he trod on the toe of his countrymen fierce, and he now is the foe of all things that resemble authority. And George remarks frequently he'll depart in haste, on arrival in Melbourne, as he's now had a taste, of his officer's ire he'll run as if chased, by the devil himself or authority. Now I myself personally am saintly and pure, alcoholic refreshment and females abhor. I confess I'd endure just a week or so here in authority. When our voyaging is o'er and our paydays we've got, we'll adjourn to a pub for a fair thee well tot, and we'll drink to ourselves and to hell with the lot of all those who are now in authority. Greetings this episode to Evelyn, whose project I'm looking forward to reading. I hope the contacts helped. Take care and appreciate your coffee.